Last week, we looked at strongholds, those areas of our lives where the enemy has the higher ground. And how did it go this week? You know, as you pressed into those battles, did you find maybe that things were a little more difficult? Um, or maybe there were some defeats, there were some, some victories. Uh, we would love to hear about it. We've been praying for you as a pastoral team. As you see the pastors, come, come share with us, send us a, an email. And I just want to remind you uh, that that is a long-term battle. That's a process as we press into those areas. A lot of times the victory doesn't come uh, overnight, but it's as we daily press into that spiritual battle that the Lord uh, has for us. And just remember, don't show up to the fight with a Nerf gun. All right, make sure to, to use those weapons that the Lord has uh, provided. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be encouraged about how much you love us. You know each of us what we're going through, where our joys and struggles are. We ask that your word would edify us and that you, Jesus, would be glorified, that we would find our, our lives firmly planted in the gospel. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As a dad of three daughters and one son, I've got three girls and my youngest is a boy, I always take note at weddings of the interaction between dads and daughters. And I can't help but think that, Lord willing, someday I'll, I'll be walking one of my daughters or daughters down uh, the aisle. And I did a wedding this summer, and I was noticing the dad is just pacing in the hallway. And you could just see him, all of the emotions were, were coming over him. And about 15 minutes before the wedding, I bumped into him in the restroom, and, you know, he was losing it in the restroom. The restroom was his refuge where his uh, tears were, were coming out. And I was moved and I was thinking about this uh, moment uh, that could be for me in the, the future. But I also like to watch the groom, you know, the, these young husbands. And, you know, it's no fault of the husbands, but they really have no idea all the work that the parents have done. And I was there. I got married when I was 23. But there's no way that they could know what the dad has done for that daughter. You know, how the dad felt when he held his daughter for the first time. And seeing his, his daughter walk for, for the first time. It's such an amazing moment. I remember when our oldest, Hannah, when she took off and started walking for the first time. And teaching our girls how to ride their bike. And when their heart gets broken for the first time by a boy. And teaching them how to, how to drive. So here's this groom receiving the bride, and he kind of looks at the dad and is like, thanks a lot, see you later. Like, she's mine now. And I think of that, and I just, man, I just want to punch the guy in the face. <laughs> and, and I don't even know the guy yet, right? It's like, man, I just want to punch him in the, in the face. And Paul uses this analogy of a father giving away a bride of how he thinks about the church of Corinth. He says, I want to present you to Jesus as a pure virgin before Christ, having a heart of integrity in the gospel. It's really important to see Paul as a spiritual father as we go through this text, or it's hard to understand it. It's easy to misunderstand, because false teachers are coming in. They no longer trust Paul, and so Paul, much like a dad's having to do, is saying, hey, don't you remember all the care I've given to you? And I would really appreciate it if you listen to me in this area. So Paul shows his godly jealousy towards the church of Corinth. 
Paul wrote to this same church and he says, you have 10,000 instructors, but you have few fathers. You think about in your life and there's probably a lot of people that have taught you and given you information that you're thankful for, but there's probably a few that have really invested in you and really cared for you. So we see that heart of a spiritual father from Paul. Verse one, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly and indeed you do bear with me. The folly is Paul having to give his credentials, to give his spiritual resume, if you would. And you can see Paul's hesitation. He really doesn't want to have to do this. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We oftentimes think of jealousy in the sinful sense, in the way that the scribes and Pharisees wanted to kill Christ out of envy and jealousy. But there is a godly jealousy. In fact, God is jealous for our hearts and our devotion to him. And Paul says, I have godly jealousy that you would be faithful to Christ, that you be faithful to the gospel. In ancient times, a betrothal was similar to our engagements, but more serious. It was a more serious commitment and actually took a legal divorce to be able to break off of that relationship. And he pictures this day when the church of Corinth is going to come into the culmination of their relationship with Christ. And the same is true for us. We're enjoying relationship with Christ, but it's just the beginning. There's going to be the culmination So he asked the question, well, how does one stay committed to Christ in this analogy of a bride being presented to the bridegroom? And the answer is in verse three. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The way to be presented to God in a faithful manner is to remain in the gospel to not move from the simplicity that's in Christ. This word uh, simplicity, it means pure devotion or singleness of mind. Or our mind is singly set on the fact that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again, never moving away from the gospel. It's not necessarily that in our own merit, our own strength, what we've done, that we're gonna be able to be presented before a holy God, but because of our position in Christ, that we're forgiven from Christ. But there's also an enemy here. Satan's crafty, he's tricky. In some ways, it would be easier to deal with Satan if it was always that frontal attack, where I know that I'm being attacked by Satan, but but he wants to come into our lives through deception. He wants to come through our lives through trickery, to deceive us and to corrupt our minds, to where our minds start to believe things about Christ that are no longer accurate. That's the temptation for the church of Corinth, that these false teachers are coming to preach another gospel, another Jesus to them, and their minds will be corrupted. Last week in chapter 10, we were encouraged that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Satan wants to win over our minds. The battle's won and lost in our minds. Thought life becomes real life. Let's turn back to Genesis and see how Satan went about this with Eve. So Genesis chapter three. In verse one. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, 
Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So where does Satan begin questioning the word of God? Did God really say this? Did God really say that you're not to eat of every tree in the garden? You know, did God really create the universe and speak all things into existence? Did God really give his son for you? Is heaven real? Can you really count on eternal life? Is God going to be faithful to his promise? And just planting that seed of doubt in our hearts and minds to get us to question the word of God. It goes on in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Interesting that Eve adds to the command of God. God said, don't eat it. She said, God said that we're also not to touch it. I think Eve's logic is, well, if I don't touch it, I won't eat it. But we tend to do the same thing as Eve. We add commands to God's word that aren't necessarily there with the hopes to protect ourselves. In verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now he contradicts the word. You're not going to die. God said that you would die as a result of your sin, of your, of your disobedience, but, but you're not going to die. And those contradictions are planted in our hearts and minds when it comes to the word of God. Satan's going to look to undermine and contradict God's word. In verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan makes a bad thing sound good. <laughs> It makes God look like he's holding out on Adam and Eve. He's attacking the very character and nature of God. Have you ever gone there in your mind where you start going down a track, a line of thinking where you're like, man, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know really that God forgives my sins. I don't know that he's a loving father. If he's a loving father, then, then how could he allow this suffering in my life? Where was he... And Satan loves that, to try to get us to question the character and the nature of God. So how do we know that God is good? We say that a lot, but what really anchors us in those dark times, those moments of temptation, that we really do have a loving Father? It's the cross. It's the fact that God loved us enough to give us his only begotten Son. And if he gives us his son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? But you can see the tactic of the enemy and the way that he is wrestling with Eve's mind. In verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So Adam joins in on this. Don't let anybody tell you that sin's not fun. Sin's fun. In fact, the Bible even says that, that there is pleasure in sin for a season. The problem is, is after we sin, it bites hard. It kicks back really hard. And from a worldly perspective, this has got it all. Man, it's good for food. This is gonna, gonna taste good. Who doesn't love good food? an Epicurean. I'm, I'm living for good gourmet food and the pleasures of life. Oh, and it looks good. Man, this sin right now, it, it just looks good to my eyes. My eyes want it. My flesh wants it. And it's going to 
Give me the pride of life as well. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and pride of life. This capacity, this sin has the capacity to, to make me wise. That this sin is gonna give me so-called identity and give me value in, in the eyes of, of others. So Adam and Eve, they sin in the midst of, of this moment. And Paul uses this to teach the church of Corinth to say, Satan's gonna come in and specifically try to change your heart and mind with what you believe about Jesus. And that's the most important thing, is what you believe about Christ. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians and look at verse four. It says, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you may well put up with it. That's Paul's concern. You're going to receive another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Many people proclaim Jesus, but they don't proclaim the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the scriptures. False religions fail when it comes to the person and work of Christ. Most false religions do not believe that Jesus is God. So you will run into people that will talk about Christ, but when you really examine what do you believe about Christ, it's not the God of the scriptures. So when you are examining teaching, the most important thing that you need to examine about that teaching is what they believe about Jesus. Who's Jesus? Is he God? Is it a big deal to believe that Jesus is God? What if Jesus isn't God? Well, then you just have a man dying upon the cross for our sins, not an atoning sacrifice. But if Jesus is God, you have the God-man, all God, all man, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, which results in forgiveness. So we have to be careful that we're not corrupted and start believing in another Jesus, but also a different spirit. First John tells us that we're to test the spirits. Just because something is spiritual, you can't necessarily trust it. Because Satan and his demons love to come in this spiritual realm. What if you have a spiritual experience, but the message of that spiritual experience doesn't line up with the word, doesn't line up with who Jesus is? Would you take the word or would you take that spiritual experience? A lot of times people take the spiritual experience. Well, I had this dream. This spirit talked with me and it has to be the Holy Spirit. No, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's the enemy being a counterfeit to the work of, of the Holy Spirit. Then another gospel. Gospel means good news. So how are we gonna know if somebody preaches to us a different gospel? Well, it makes sense that we would be rooted and grounded our feet would be firmly planted in the true gospel. So what is the true gospel? First, First Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus died for our sins, according to scripture, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where we're sinners, and we need a savior, and Jesus provided forgiveness, grace, acceptance, eternal life, as we repent from our sins, which means to turn from our sin, to believe that Jesus is God and died and rose again, inviting him to be the Lord of our life, take control of our life, God grants to us salvation. And that's what we're to stay rooted in. 
And that's what we're not to move away from. How important is this? It is of utmost importance. We oftentimes talk about in the Christian faith something being essential and non-essential. What do we mean by that? Well, when it comes to the gospel, it's absolutely essential because it determines whether you go to heaven or hell. When it comes to end-time events, we have many views of the rapture. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib, people that are like, I don't know, however it all pans out, right? (laughs) Now, I'm a firm believer in the pre-trib rapture view, but if you hold to mid-trib or you hold to post-trib or or you're like, however it pans out, that doesn't affect your salvation. That's not part of the gospel. So this is not something we can get wrong. We, we can't get the gospel wrong. We can't drift from, from the gospel. What would be another gospel that somebody might preach or, or might proclaim? It's a works-based salvation, one that's not on grace. And it would proclaim Jesus, but it would not proclaim the finished work of Christ resulting in the forgiveness of our sins. And it would be you working, earning, deserving salvation by your own merit. And again, when you look at false religions, they'll reject Christ and they'll teach a works-based salvation. When you really look at Mormonism, even though there's the name Jesus on it, it's a works-based gospel. It's a, it's another gospel. They don't believe Jesus is God. They believe that Jesus and Satan are, are brothers The Muslim faith is a works-based salvation. You've got to work it out in your own moral efforts to try to be good enough to, to get to heaven. So legalism can easily come in and present itself as another gospel. Now, are good works part of the life of a believer? Absolutely. As God saves us, we want to respond in in living for him, but it's not to earn salvation, it's because we've received salvation. A very popular gospel that's being proclaimed actually in the church is universalism. Many times they don't come out and just say, hey, this is is universalism, but it's the teaching that everybody goes to heaven. It's taking hell and God's punishment out of the gospel. And there's a lot of problems with that. And the first is, is that Jesus taught about hell. So you're really undermining the teaching of Christ. In John chapter three, John three sixteen, that we know and love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But you go on to verse 17 and verse 18, Jesus says, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Jesus taught extensively about hell. So if you throw out hell, you have to throw out the teachings of Christ. Oftentimes when I'm hearing a universalist teach, at the end of their argument, they are really putting themselves in a position where they judge God. And it usually sounds like this. I don't want to have anything to do with a God who sends people to hell. God can't be loving if he sends people to hell instead of submitting themselves to God's word and allowing themselves to be conformed to his image. 
So let's just say hypothetically, if we take hell out of the scriptures, out of the gospel, doesn't that really undermine the work of Christ upon the cross? Why would God have to send his son if there isn't punishment for sin? God could just simply forgive sin and not have to send his son to die upon the cross. Also, if there's no eternal judgment for sin, it really undermines the depravity of sin. There's probably been some moments in our lives where we've sinned and we've felt the weight of, man, what I just did was, was hideous. What, what I just did was, was wrong. And then there's times when something happens to us, and we're like, man, that's evil. There's things that we read about in the news and kids getting kidnapped and brutalized and abused and killed, and we go, that, that is wicked. A just God has to hold that person accountable for their sin. A just God has to hold me accountable for my sin. So God in his love sent his son to take the punishment for my sin so that I could be forgiven. It's not God just letting me off of my sin, but Jesus taking the punishment for my sin. So don't allow someone to come in and convince you of a, of a different gospel, of another gospel. Be rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't move away from it. And that's how we're presented as a chaste version before Christ, because we're in the gospel. Verse five, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Paul's saying I can hold my ground with the other apostles, even the, the super apostles, even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I'm not in knowledge, but we've been thoroughly manifest among you in all things. Apparently, Paul had not received training in speech, but he says I do have knowledge. My pastor growing up tells a story about a party, birthday party that was thrown, and at this party was a Shakespearean actor. And he asked the actor, would you quote Psalms 23? And he did it beautifully, he did it perfectly. Great articulation and a powerful voice, but also the pastor was there at the party. He says, pastor, would you mind quoting Psalms 23 as well? Not near as powerful, but at the end, the pastor had a tear coming down his cheek, and the actor said, I know the psalm, but the pastor knows the author, knows the, the shepherd. And what Paul's saying is, I may not be the most powerful speaker, but I do know who Jesus is. And then Paul, much like a parent, says, look, you know me. My life has been clearly manifest before you. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. Some sarcasm from Paul. Did I harm you by coming and sharing the good news with you and not charging you? I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. Other churches were giving in order that Paul could come and share with Corinth. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied and everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Paul was not a burden to the church of Corinth. Other churches helped meet his needs. He labored with his own hands. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows. 
more sarcasm from Paul. <laughs> it's like, God knows that I love you. God knows that I care about you. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul says, I'm going to continue to try to regain your trust to protect you from these false prophets. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into the angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. It'd be kind of nice if Satan always just showed up in red pajamas with a pitchfork and some horns. No thanks. Don't want any uh, today, right? But Satan's much more clever than that. You'll notice in those verses we just read, the word transform is used several times. And it's actually masquerade, where the outward gets transformed without the inward. Satan's not truly transformed into a minister of light, but he masks or raids himself as light and also his workers. So these false teachers, these false apostles, they're going to make themselves look like workers of righteousness. At first encounter with them, you go, man, they really love Jesus. They're really following after, after Christ. Everything about them appears to, to be light and righteousness. But then again, as you start to examine the fruit and look at the message, well, wait a second, they don't believe Jesus was God. Well, wait, wait a second, they're really teaching a, a works-based salvation. Again, I'm gonna mention Mormonism, and if, if this offends you, it's not meant to be offensive, but I wanna just highlight this because Mormonism is not Christianity, but from outward, Mormonism looks really good, doesn't it? It's very clean. It's very attractive. You go to the Mormon temples. They're, they're all put together. They help each other. If you're prepping a bunch of food, go to the Mormon store. You're going to get a bunch of food for a really good price. They, they do good things for, for the community, but you press into it, and it's a works-based salvation. I kind of feel for people that show up at Manitou Springs for vacation. <laughs> spending all this money to come out of state to spend a week in Manitou Springs. Have you been to Manitou Springs lately? Like, it's kind of nice. You start walking around and you're looking at those shops. There's some weird shops. And the shops present themselves as being light. You're like, oh man, look at this, this beautiful glass piece, but then you look a little bit closer and some of those shops are full on into witchcraft, full on into d- demonic activity, but they don't come out and say, hey, we're into Satan worship here. Come buy some of our stuff. It's, it's presented as light. It's presented as, as something that, that is good. And so we have to understand that, that Satan's going to come in this uh, deceptive manner. So how do we combat this? Got to know the scriptures. Search the scriptures for yourself. You, you hear something, open up your Bible and go, wait a second, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't sound right. This person said this was in the Bible, but I don't know that this is in the Bible. And probably more than any other time, we have access to, to the word of God to study it for ourselves. Verse 16, 
And I, again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in the confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. Paul's saying, why, why do you put up with this? Why do you put up with these false teachers? They mistreat you, they put you into bondage, they, they devour you. Verse 21, to our shame, I say that we are too weak for that. Paul says, I, I'm too weak to put you into bondage. I'm too weak to abuse you. But in whatever, I, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. And then Paul now lists for us his credentials. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Apparently the false teachers were Jews, most likely teaching a legalistic gospel. Saying, oh, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but now you've got to come under the law. And Corinth would primarily be Gentiles in Greece. Men, you've got to get circumcised. Time to give up the pork. All of those, those things. And Paul says, wait a second, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Of the things that Paul could have listed for his credentials, he could have listed how he got saved. Pretty radical. He could have listed all the churches that he planted. He could have listed all of the epistles that he wrote, a good section of, of the New Testament. Paul doesn't do any of that. Instead, he lists his sufferings, saying, if you want to know somebody is a servant of Christ, look at their sufferings. Look at what they've gone through for the cause of Christ. He says, in labors, more abundant. Paul was a tent maker. He worked with his own hands to, to support his ministry. He traveled miles to take the gospel to those that needed to hear it. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So Paul was beaten, whipped. Five different occasions he was beaten 39 times. Jesus was also whipped. Paul prayed to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I'm sure that Paul bore the scars of these types of beatings and it taught him and instructed him what Christ had done for him. You know, sometimes we see somebody suffer and our hearts go out to them, but we can't fully understand. But then we go through suffering in our lives that's similar to what they've gone through and there's a whole nother appreciation and Paul had this deep identity, this deep identification with, with Christ's sufferings. He was put in prison frequently. Often he was put in prison for the cause of Christ. In deaths often. He's saying, my life was often put in jeopardy for the cause of Christ. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I have been in the deep. 
beaten up with rods three times, stoned. The book of Acts records that event where Paul is left for dead as he was, was stoned. Shipwrecked on three occasions, spends a day and night out in the, in the ocean, and journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren. Where did Paul go where there wasn't peril? It's like everywhere I go, there's peril. Well, why was that? Because Paul was telling people about Jesus everywhere that he went. And some accepted Christ, but others hated Paul for it. Paul really adopted the mission of Christ where Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And Paul says, I want to pursue those that don't know Christ as their Savior. I want to love them and proclaim the gospel to them, even if it means suffering in my life, in weariness and toil. Do you think Paul got tired? Absolutely. I'm sure there were times he was preaching to himself, don't get weary in doing good. In sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting, often, in cold and nakedness. Times that Paul couldn't sleep, as you could imagine, in, in prison, and in shipwrecked, in the hardships that he was in. Hunger and fasting and thirst, it's not speaking of, well, I'm setting aside food for prayer. It's he didn't have food. There's many times he went out without food in suffering for Christ. He's cold and naked. Don't you hate being cold? And I'm not talking about the kind of cold of like, man, I had to go from the parking lot into the building. It was so cold. Or, man, I went out into the garage and just about froze to death out there, right? If you've ever been out in the elements where you can't get warm and it's an extremely cold day, it's brutal. Your hands get cold, your feet get cold, and it starts to mess with your mind. You just want to escape the cold. And in, in prison, Paul would be exposed to this intense amount of, of cold, but also nakedness. The great apostle Paul is suffering and he's naked in, in prison for the cause of Christ. What would move Paul to suffer this way? Why would he choose this life of suffering? One of the reasons, I think, is what we're going to see next week in chapter 12 is God had given Paul a vision of heaven. Paul really had an eternal perspective. And as he looked forward to heaven, it wasn't just a fairy tale or a wish or a whim, but he knew he was going to forever be with the Lord. So he wanted to make the most of this life and proclaim Christ, even if it meant suffering. I think Paul had received the gospel and was moved by the gospel. Paul says that he personally was persuaded that the gospel, what we've just talked about, is the power of God unto salvation. Paul believed that as he shared, Jesus loves you, he died for your sins, and he rose again. As you trust him, you can be saved and be the child of God. He believed that that was the power of God. And he had a heart for people to go to heaven and not go to hell. So he's like, man, if I'm in prison, it's worth it. If I'm stoned, it's worth it. If I don't have food to eat, it's worth it. It's the opportunity to be able to proclaim Christ. All of us have to wrestle with the suffering that we go through in life. Paul wrote and he said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
and wrestle with, okay, God, I was trying to follow you, live for you, and now because of those decisions, there's suffering that's come into my life. But then we've also got to try to wrestle with all of the other types of suffering that come into our lives. And Paul says, look, my suffering is what has actually qualified me to be the minister of God. And I want you to be encouraged in your own suffering. If we allow it to, God will use suffering to allow us to know Jesus in a greater way, to be conformed to his image. No one likes to suffer. I don't sign up for suffering. But when God allows suffering in my life, I know he's doing it for a purpose. He's wanting to take me closer to Christ. He's wanting to conform me to his image if I'm, I'm willing. But suffering then also gives us the bridge into people's lives. When we suffer, we look around and we can see other people that are suffering. We have a heart of compassion towards them. If they're a believer, we want to come alongside of them in a greater way. If they're an unbeliever, we desperately want them to know Christ as their Savior. That there's something there deep within our hearts that wasn't there prior to us suffering. In fact, it's been said that in order for God to use someone greatly, he has to first hurt them deeply. And that doesn't make sense to us. We go, I want to be used by God. Why would God allow pain in my life? Because that pain becomes the platform. The pain is what God uses to be able to verify that we're the servant of God. And Paul, he saw his suffering as something that the Lord used greatly in his life. In verse 28, he says, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. So he has his external suffering, but the internal suffering was his deep care for the churches. All these churches that God had allowed him to plant in that spirit, spiritual burden that he had for them. And here's these false teachers that are coming in to the church of Corinth. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn up with indignation? When someone's weak, Paul hurt for them. If someone's being taken advantage of them, would make Paul angry with that godly jealousy. If I must boast, I boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Finding that value in his suffering and his weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Artus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped from his hands. This is the very beginning of Paul's walk with the Lord in Damascus. He goes and starts sharing in the synagogues and they want to kill him. And he's had to be let down a wall outside of Damascus, recorded for us in the book of Acts. So what's the big takeaway for us this morning? Know the gospel, rejoice in the gospel, stay firmly planted in the gospel. Be aware that the enemy's going to want to come in and get your eyes off of Jesus, get your eyes off the gospel. Bring in those doubts. Well, Jesus doesn't really forgive all of your sins. Jesus doesn't love you. Maybe you should focus on trying to save yourself through good works. Or how could a loving God send people to hell? And stay firmly planted in the gospel. 
And for us as believers, as we rejoice in the gospel and the gospel impacts us, to, like Paul, be willing to take the gospel out to those that don't know Christ as their Savior. Jesus would say the suffering was worth it. Paul would say the suffering was worth it. Would we say the suffering is worth it? I think when we get to eternity, we're going to say yes. It was worth the time. It was worth the effort. It was worth the rejection to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted and received the gospel, would you consider it? Would you stop for just a moment and go, what do I believe about Jesus? Do I believe he's God? Jesus claimed to be God. Yes or no? Well, why? Why do you believe he's God? Why do you not believe that, that he was God? Is there a time in your life where you've become aware of your sin and you've turned from sin and trusted Christ? Jesus saved me. I believe you died for me and rose again. And if the answer is no, the scriptures tell you that heaven is real and hell is real. And if you continue to reject Christ through the course of your life, not once, but all of your life, then God will send you to hell. But God also tells us that he doesn't want anyone to perish. It's not his will that any would perish. God has you in this service, online or in person, so that you could hear the love of Jesus that he does love you. The love that you're looking for is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So will you respond to the gospel? Will you believe it and receive it and invite Christ to be the Lord of your life? Are you tired of being in charge of your own life? You realize the destruction that it brings in your life and the life of others and you're like, yes, I'm ready for Christ to be my Lord and Savior, which means he takes control of my life. As we end this service, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. We're going to be available here in the front on the sides where it's a little bit quieter. And would you come and say, I'm ready to trust Christ as my Savior. If you have questions, let's sit down and talk about it. Online, there's a ministry team that's available. You can go to the chats, the comments. Let us know, I'd like to receive Christ as my Savior. And we'll message you one-on-one give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior. Life gets really complicated, doesn't it? (laughs) And sometimes inside of Christianity, we tend to make things really complicated. It's not complicated. Jesus loves you. The Bible tells me so. Jesus died for my sins. He rose again. I'm a sinner that has a Savior. I'm going to stay planted in that. As a church, as individuals, may we stay planted in the gospel. We're living in interesting, desperate times. Jesus is the answer. You know the answer. It's Jesus. What people really need, what they're looking for, is Christ. And God has commissioned us, not someone else. God has commissioned us where he says, go. Go spend time with people that don't know Christ. Go out into the unchurched. Go out into the world and make disciples. Tell them of Jesus' love. You don't have to be an expert. You know what Christ has done in your life. You get to share what Christ has done in your life. Thankfully, God uses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise, doesn't he? He's looking to use the available. Let's say, God, I'm available to you. Lord, Lord, send me. I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to share the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, We oftentimes make things complicated. 
then we want to have this simplicity, this singleness of mind. Jesus, it's all about you, who you are, what you've done, your death and resurrection. And for those of us that know you, may you renew in us a heart to, to love the lost, to share good news. For those that don't, we just pray that this morning would be the day of, of turning to you and receiving salvation. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.